Hey folks, it's Dina here. Before we hop into today's episode, I just wanted to give you a few quick notes to clarify or correct some things that come up during the conversation that you're about to hear. First of all, in my introduction of today's guest, Ben Bloom, I mispronounced the name of the restaurant that he was most recently working at. I said Comis, but it's actually Comi in Oakland, California. That's C-O-M-I-S. The second thing is that you'll hear Ben referencing the Baha'i Faith a few times throughout the interview. Ben and I are both members of the Baha'i Faith, which is a major world religion with followers in virtually every country around the world. This is all you really need to know for the purposes of this podcast episode, but if you'd like to know more, you can visit baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, and do your own research. Now let's hear this episode. Hello, you're listening to Everyday Creative People. I'm your host, Dina Adrians, and this podcast is for the doers, dreamers, and makers of the world. For anyone who wishes they had more time and freedom to play, who struggles with creative blocks, or who's trying to figure out how to make a living while making art, I'm here to stumble through the madness by your side. Once you finish listening to today's show, please take a moment to subscribe to future episodes and rate the podcast. Leave a comment and tell a friend. It will really help me out. You can also join the community over in the Creative Playground Facebook group after the show and find all the show notes at dinaadriance.com slash ecppodcast. Now settle in, get comfy, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Everyday Creative People. My guest today is Ben Bloom, who is a cook and writer. And Ben grew up, spent a significant number of years in his early childhood living in Taiwan and getting exposed to all the different food cultures there, which was really where his love of food began. Um, And then came back to the States for a while, moved back to Thailand for a while, went to school on the East Coast to study cooking um, and has been to Australia to cook with Ben Shuri at Attica um, and is now, you're now at Commas in Oakland, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, now at Commas um, in Oakland. What, what's the um? Oh, uh, I, I just left. Just left, okay. Cool. <laughs> and um, and so, so no longer at Commas in Oakland. <laughs> and um, also, you just started a cool new venture um, called, it's, it's Sans Wolf, as in like without a wolf. Is that right? Correct. Correct, yeah. which is making cool, interesting chocolates. Yeah. So lots of cool things happening. Um, so Ben, so nice to have you here today. How are you? I am well. How about you? I'm good. It's been a while. It has. Yeah. Uh, so let's see, where should we start? Um, do you want to start us off by telling us a little bit about the story of your journey, if you will? Um, sure. So I was born north of Chicago in a town called Evanston. My parents were working at um, the Baha'i National Center there. And shortly after my birth, they wanted to go pioneering to go and talk about the faith in different parts of the world. And we moved to Taiwan. I think I was like six, seven months old. We spent a little bit of time um, in England trying to figure out where. My parents ended up getting a, a job in Taipei during the time in England. And so I was there from just about one years old and like, I don't know, 15 months essentially <laughs> until I was uh, eight and a half. Uh, and then I, I moved back to the States. Um, for me, it was like, I fell in love with cooking at a very young age. My mom is a very, very good cook, um, mainly because my grandmother is a terrible cook. Um, <laughs> Reactionary. <laughs> Right. Um, but my mother grew up very, uh, very poor in a, uh, a suburb of L.A. And so she she grew up like, you know, cooking everything at home. And then my father grew up completely opposite where he came from a lot more, relatively a lot more money. And so they would always go out. And so when I was growing up in Taiwan, like I had the mix of both sides of the coin of her food. Mm-hmm. 
where my mom always wanted to eat humbly and at home. And then my father always wanted to go explore um, new cultures, new restaurants and stuff like that. And both of them had jobs in which we could go explore different countries and parts of the world. Um, by the time I moved to America when I was eight, I had already been to almost 20 countries. Wow. Um, yeah. That's a lot of countries. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is a lot. That's like um, an average of more than two countries per year of your life. Yeah. Um, they, so like, it just worked out really well. Both my parents had jobs where part of their contract was a free round trip ticket to anywhere for your family. Um, and so we would use one of those per year and go back to the States, renew visas, all that stuff. And another one usually goes somewhere else, um, somewhere new or, uh, yeah. Hmm. And so like, I, I was always just absolutely enamored um, with food in Taiwan. I mean, in all of the Chinese culture, you don't say, how are you? You ask, have you eaten? Huh. Um, and so it, it <laughs> was like ingrained in me, a, like this idea of food. And then I was always so interested in what people were doing and how to make dumplings and all that stuff. And it wasn't until I was back in the States that it really started to flourish because I went from like this amazing food culture to being really really underwhelmed <laughs> with the food <laughs> in suburban Chicago, which is where we landed. And, you know, people would be like, have you, oh, you grew up in Taiwan. Have you had Panda Express? I was like, I hate you <laughs> so much. <laughs> Not really the same and, thing. <laughs> nah. But I think, like, when I moved from Taiwan to the States, I was, I was pretty unhappy about the move. So I spent a lot of time like wanting to kind of recapture um, Taiwan and my time there. Hmm. And then, so I, I became more vested in, in the food and that was like my closest connection with like the childhood that I, I left. Hmm. And um, I just became enamored with it and you know, would stumble upon cookbooks. Um, and there was a TV show. I remember we would all come home from school and like middle school and everyone would watch, you know, cartoons. Mm -hmm. And at the same time as the cartoons on Discovery Channel, there's a show called Great Chefs of the World. And I would just spend my teenage and adolescent years watching that show more than I did cartoons. That's awesome. Like, that's why... I fell in love with things like French cooking and I uh, watched um, uh, Paul Bocuse make uh, duck uh, a la fresse and all these different things and like blown away by it. And um, It wasn't until I was like 16 when I decided I wanted to be a cook and just been going at it ever since. But then after after high school, um, I moved to Thailand to spend a year doing volunteer work. Um, as part of a school that was doing socioeconomic work in rural Thailand. And the school was run by um, some Baha'is and still is run by Baha'is. And the whole point of the school was to kind of teach moral education um, along with you know, general knowledge and stuff. And part of my time there was to work in the kitchens because they had the most astonishing food system after like living in, you know, the American cafeterias of middle school and high school <laughs> to then go, go the other route. And you see, we had, I think it was like 250 kids were at that mm -hmm. school every, uh, and lunch was made fresh every day Wow! from scratch and like just watching them work and like picking up little things here and there like little tips and stuff like that I fell in love with Thai food and kind of the humility of, of it all and then 
after that, I moved to Rhode Island. And that's where I met you. Yes. Um, <laughs> and you moved to Rhode Island to, specifically to go to school? Right, for culinary school at a place called Johnson & Wales. And I was in Rhode Island for six years in total. And then I moved to Boston for a couple of years. Um, and that's kind of where I fell in love with doing pastries. Like, I'd always been interested in it because I like I didn't know that much about it. I didn't go to school for pastry. I went four years for savory. And so every year, every other year, we'd have, like, one class about pastry. And I just knew that that was, like, a weakest of mine. Hmm. And in Boston, I, I got a job as a, a pastry person. And I was essentially running this station. And I started applying some of the aspects of like the savory side to desserts and because I don't have a traditional background in it, 90% of it was, I like learned by reading and watching other people. Mm-hmm. I didn't have like a certain framework mm-hmm. per se to like follow. I wasn't stuck by different boundaries. And so like I came up with different desserts and, all of a sudden someone was very nice and came in and her and I were talking and like I would give, she sat at the counter of this restaurant that I was working at and we were just talking and I was like, Oh, you know, you want to try some experiments that I'm working on and, you know, had her taste it. Little did I know that she was a writer for Boston magazine. Um, And then she called me like two months later and said that I was, uh, the best new pastry chef in Boston along wow. with two other <laughs> yeah and I'd only been doing it for like three or four months <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> yeah I, I just think like a big part of it was just like you know I didn't I just thought of it as a as the savory cook would like mm-hmm. you pair ingredients not by how sweet it is but just by how it works and some are more sweet and some are less sweet you know I think one of those desserts I gave her we had made, we tried to make everything in house. And so we had made miso. And so it was like early spring and I made a miso ice cream with uh, green strawberries and black pepper meringue. Huh. Um, green she was strawberries? Like, this is like great. unripe strawberries? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Because yeah, they were just, I just slightly marinated them in uh, a chamomile. And so that's like a dish that I would, if you just remove the uh, the adjectives and replace ice cream with uh, custard or uh, meringue with crisp, like it's an appetizer in a tasting menu format. Right. So that's really interesting. Um, and then, yeah, I, I always try to make weird stuff work. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's like that's that's because like of my upbringing, like. You know, I, and then all these things come from learning such very uh, disciplines and very cultures. You know, you, you right. can't see a lot of parallels between the finest fine dining restaurant in uh, in Paris and the streets of Thailand. There's not a lot that's the same, but those are the two of the um, disciplines that I kind of grew up in. Hmm. And so like when I make food, it's not confined to any one thing. And I think that's like kind of who I am in a lot of ways. Like I'm, you know, like I'm talking about the Baha'i faith and so I'm like super religious and I follow this thing that I love, but at the same time, like I'm heavily tattooed. I love metal. Um, (laughs) And like I speak four languages and um but I'm really white. Like so <laughs> What are the four languages that you speak? I speak uh English kind of. Um <laughs> Mandarin, Thai and Spanish. Mandarin, Thai and Spanish. That's cool. It's, it's quite the combination of things. Did you learn Thai when you were serving there? Yeah. So um I was probably one of so the town that I was in was about 20,000-ish people, okay. 25. And I think out of the 25, 
thousand, I think ten were fluent in English. Maybe fifteen mm-hmm. people. Um, and I happen to be friends with all of them. Yeah, it was like a lot of people. I think they saw like pictures on like when Facebook was first starting, and I was posting things when I was living there. Mm-hmm. Um, of like various things that I was doing, it seemed cool and interesting. But a lot of times, I didn't take pictures of some of the other stuff. But like you, you drove ten minutes outside of the main town, which was the capital of the region, and it was dirt roads and. Mm-hmm. People like we did outreach and visited various families, and we're literally sitting on a patch of earth. And it was a really pretty insane kind of situation where you're like teaching English and you go back, and you know, I have my computer at my laptop at home, and I'm you know, on AIM back when it was around, and I could go on Facebook and you know, all this stuff, and I mean you drive five minutes away and people don't have electricity, you know? And, mm. and I think that kind of humble food is along with, you know, growing up in Taiwan is really what kind of makes the food that I'm like, maybe personifies the food I make now. And mm. with the chocolates, it's pretty easy to like buy a lot of pre-made stuff. Like it's, I can even buy pre-made you know, bonbon shows and, you know, make my life significantly right. easier. But like when you eat at someone's house who lives on the earth and they give you a full meal and you're like, this must have been the cheapest of the cheap ingredients that are available, but they put so much care and love into each ingredient because you have to, otherwise it tastes like rotting or it tastes like, super bitter you know like when you eat a soup that's main ingredient is beef bile it's because they don't have a bile yeah okay uh uh, so what exactly is beef bile (laughs) i'm not sure that i know (laughs) this is kind of taking a left turn but it's like the part of the (laughs) digestive tract of a cow and it's okay if you're wondering what it smells like just think of when you throw up it's that same smell um sounds great (laughs) but then that's all they have you know Mm. and if your option using every part of the animal yeah you don't have an option i think a lot of people especially in america are like oh man i'm broke and i'm like no no you're not but so the the question becomes how do you take this disgusting thing and make it palatable well, you cook it with certain herbs that balance it out. You serve it with plenty of broken rice because they can't afford the full grains of rice. And you get to a point where you become accustomed to it, that you're fine with it because it just tastes like a bitter soup. Hmm. And isn't also, if I'm remembering or if I'm remembering things correctly, isn't there, um, I think it's in Chinese culture at least, that, that there's... Um, uh, some traditions or ideas about uh, the different that it's actually really good for you to have like bitter foods and mm-hmm. um, sort of different. Is that is that also part of Thai cooking? It's not as like predominant like uh, a okay. philosophy because I think mm-hmm. in a lot of Chinese cultures or a lot of Chinese um, like regions. Each, you know, individual region will have its chef and what the chef puts on food, especially in the large, fancy banquet uh, things. It's meant that everything is in balance. Um, And so if this Mm. dish comes out, it needs to be balanced. And if it's not, then the next dish that comes out has to balance that one. And so part, part of it is like the flavor uh, receptors and kind of balance those, the five that we have. In Thai cooking, it's not dissimilar. It's more of a needs base versus a, this is what we practice and what we believe. Mm-hmm. It's more like, this is really fatty 
grilled pork mm. neck. And it's really spicy. So we'll serve it with very bitter uh, greens um, hmm. that will help kind of brighten it without adding to the spice. Um, and they have to spice things because if you grill a pork neck, which is an absolutely delicious snack there, if you ever get a chance, um, <laughs> it's, you know, super spicy and you're like, oh my God, I can't deal with this. But it's super spicy because that pig might have been very old and was used to make sure that it birthed plenty of pigs and piglets rather. Um, mm-hmm. Like if you eat a piece of chicken, it probably tastes really gamey. It's probably because it right. literally could not lay any more eggs. Therefore, it didn't. they're like, oh, I guess we have to eat it now. Which is also the basis for like French cuisine. Coco Vaz is super classic French braised chicken, but it's with the hen old rooster essentially. Um, oh, interesting. That couldn't lay eggs anymore on the farm. So it's really old, so you have to braise it in red wine. Otherwise, it's so gamey, it's not really that tasty. But now it's hmm. just like super modern, delicious thing that has been refined and refined. Right. Interesting. So, okay, I feel like we're, we're like going down this food black hole because you're fascinated by it and I'm fascinated by it. <laughs> um, but it's taking us away from our, our primary topic of, our, of this podcast here. So um, let's, let's bring it back here. I'm curious, it, it sounds like there's a lot of, um, particularly because of your exposure and um, deep experience within Asian cooking, and particularly it sounds like your experience in Thailand, it sounds like there's a lot of, um, in Thai cooking or in your experience of Thai cooking, there's sort of a lot of constraints built in mm-hmm. that have created the cuisine in the way that it is. And I'm curious how, I mean, I think often like with just thinking of the topic of creativity, often constraints can help us to actually create something much better than we might come up with without having right. specific constraints. So I'm curious how that has impacted your own um, creative process. Well, I think one of the big reasons I became a cook was watching that TV show of chefs around the world. Mm-hmm. And I bring that up because um, when I moved from Taiwan to the suburbs of Chicago, um, I was extremely bored because of the constraints that were there. I went from, you know, a town, or not town, a city of 8 million people Hmm. where you could have rush hour traffic at 3 in the morning. 3 in Um, the morning? Jeez. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty (laughs) terrible. Um, (laughs) Like, it was this intensely, like, Taiwan is one of the most densely populated countries in the world. And so there's always stimuli. And then I moved to a place where mostly everything is closed by 10 o'clock. <laughs> um, and the one like reprieve was the Wendy's that was open till 11. Mm. And so I was confined to this uh, city, this town that there wasn't anything to do. And the boredom was really pretty intense. And so I knew that if I wanted to leave, which is what I really wanted to do, I had to create something and I had to create and become really good at it. Otherwise I would be stuck there because it will like, you know, you make enough money there to like have everything you need. You can go and get a nice, nice house and all this stuff. And for me, like that was never part of the equation. The equation was entirely stimuli and doing things and, being active and there I was bored and honestly depressed. Mm-hmm. And so that need of like, this is what I have here. Mm-hmm. I need to make the very best of it because I want to get out. And so when you look at the Thai cuisine and even Taiwanese cuisine, the use of things like the offcuts of 
meat and stuff like that. It's like, okay, this is literally something that most of the world will throw away. How do you make it delicious? And how do you make it so that you can sustain not only yourself, but your family? Yeah. And so some of the things that people will come up with um, is absolutely amazing. Like there's this sauce called plara, which is like, if you think fish sauce smells bad, this is <laughs> on a whole other level. Um, like the region I was living in is primarily rice farmers. And so they would sell their rice, but you have to get rid of the husk of the rice. And so you have all this leftover rice husk. What do you do with it? Well, we have, we're completely surrounded by land. So, but we have all these rivers, but the river fish taste terrible because there's the bone to meat ratio is so much mm. so that you literally couldn't get much off of them much meat, much protein off of it. So you take these rice husks, take some salt, and you cover these fish in this mixture of rice and rice husks and salt, and you let that sit for upwards, at least rather, uh, a year. And then the sauce that kind of, the liquid that kind of comes from that is this intensely protein-rich, umami-rich seasoning that smells like rotting flesh. Um, (laughs) But it stretches the life or the the usability of um, these little pieces of protein. And then now you put this just a dash into your rice or into some vegetables that you have. Not only does it taste intensely of umami when you don't smell it like dispersing it with lime and sugar and all the other things it makes it more unctuous and more satisfying and so now Hmm. you can eat vegetables and still get all the proteins you need and also you serve it to like some white people and they're like what is this i've never tasted a piece of papaya like this before and you're like Yo, it's fish. Actually. <laughs> it's rotting fish. <laughs> FYI, <laughs> like I, I, I like I live with uh, my my roommate hates the smell of like fish sauce, and so whenever I'm cooking, he's like, "Oh God!" And then he eats it, and he's like, "Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'll put up with this." <laughs> like, fine. Can you just open the window? That's awesome. And I think when you look at the top restaurants in the world right now, that's a similar thing that they're doing. They have the ability to get whatever ingredient you want, right? Like the way the world is and how connected it is. I can pick up the phone and call someone and I can get, you know, fish from the Mediterranean that was caught this morning. I can get um, truffles from the northern part of Italy in 12 hours. I can get wow. whatever I want at any point, like so quickly. So, what a lot of the top restaurants are doing to kind of force them to be like, no, we're not going to do these things, is forcing themselves into a bubble of we're going to do what our ancestors did. And right. by constraining ourselves, our creativity is actually allowed to flourish. So one of the most creative restaurants I've ever seen is like a couple, like a thousand miles away from the Arctic Circle. And if he, if it's not within like 200 miles of his restaurant, he can't use it, but he won't use it. And so it's like, how do you, how do you make a two Michelin star restaurant in the middle of nowhere where you have to fly to Stockholm and catch a little flight from Stockholm to like this little strip in the middle of Norway. And then you have to drive another two hours. But yeah, it's one of the best, one of the best restaurants in the world. Wow. It's like, well, you have to, by constraining yourself and forcing yourself to be as creative as you can with like the least amount, it makes you even more creative. Like it's easy. I think, to be a chef in California 
and because like you can have avocados when (laughs) yeah whenever you want but then it's another like it's a real badass in my opinion to be in you know not that far away from Arctic Circle and be like I'm gonna put out food that's just as good as you and (laughs) I have nothing growing for six months Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah very different different styles and approaches to cuisine <laughs> for sure <laughs> um yeah. cool so i want to know a little bit more about your um your journey so you started off working after you finished school in boston for a while and then what mm-hmm. what was it that took you out to australia so it was actually one of my I, I call him my mentor. His name is Jake Rojas. He runs a restaurant, um, restaurants in Providence, Rhode Island. And I worked at his initial restaurant in Newport, Rhode Island. And he was the one that like kicked the crap out of me and a couple of friends. <laughs> you know, it was the most intense. It's still like, it's a restaurant with no notoriety. And I've worked at restaurants with plenty of notoriety. And this restaurant was Tallulah on things way more intense and difficult than any of these other ones and so it was actually him kind of giving me that nudge to do so where he would say that like when you leave this place i want you to go work for the best you know i want you to go work for the giants in the industry and create and all this stuff he's like i want this to be a training ground and so after i worked for him i took a little hiatus and then after uh, becoming that the pastry chef and then getting that accolade, I started remembering kind of what he was saying when I was working for him because I thought, like, I didn't think I was that good to be named that, like, mm-hmm. pastry chef in Boston. Like, I've been doing this for, like, four or five months. Like, <laughs> there's no, like, I don't understand why. And so I think that like that was like the big thing. It was like if I if I want to continue this dream of you know one day opening a restaurant and, and trying to like be the best that I can, I have to work for the best. Like I can only go mm-hmm. so far teaching myself. Right. And so I made a you list. Felt like of, you really weren't getting enough mentorship or, or teaching when you were working in Boston. Right. Like. It was also a big part of it was the food community there has yet to really fully mature. And I Mm. thought to myself one day, like the moment that I was like, I need to leave was I realized that if I was in Chicago or New York or San Francisco, I'd be pushing just to break the middle of the pack. But here I'm like one of the best, like, yeah, uh, I don't like. <laughs> yeah, I know I'm not that good. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> Got to raise the bar so, of challenge. Yeah, exactly. And so I made a list of fifteen or so restaurants that I like. I'm an absolute cookbook nerd, and so I wrote or had read these various cookbooks, and I chose fifteen restaurants that I wanted to. I had have interest working in. And I would like eliminate them one by one based on like various criteria. Like, like there was one place I was very interested in, but it was in, in Bangkok. And I was like, well, I've already lived in Thailand. Maybe it's better if I go somewhere outside that comfort zone. Mm. And I think I was left with actually that place in Sweden. That's very close to the Arctic circle and, and Attica in Australia. And, I kind of thought about it. And I'm like, well, Melbourne is a city of 4 million and Saviken, which is the restaurant in Sweden is in a town of like 10,000 <laughs> and for half the year, you shouldn't leave your cabin. So I'm <laughs> going to go with Melbourne. So I also knew that like part of it, I knew that like I would, in the food industry, it's called a stage, where mm-hmm. you go work for an extended period of time and you don't get paid. Right. Or they'll give you like a little bit of, like maybe a stipend like a or maybe a place to live, like something small. And so 
I was like, okay, I'll go with Attica because when I read his book, um, I was really absolutely blown away hmm. um, by his aesthetic, by like his rationale for why he was doing these dishes. And so I sent them an email and then I sent them another email and another email. And I think <laughs> I sent them like 12 emails in 18 hours or something like that. Um, wow. <laughs> I was, just to be like, give me an internship. And finally the sous chef replied. He was like, dude, stop. You can come. <laughs> I was like, okay. That's that's impressive. <laughs> um, and so I set up a time, and I moved from Boston to Melbourne uh, in September, and set up a time to do like six months. And about partway through my time there, I realized I wouldn't have enough money to kind of carry me through six months. Hmm. So I spent three months there, and then that was a really great learning experience. And I think the reason why I went there was like, what's the difference between good and great? Because there, um, like, there's a bunch of different restaurant restaurant review guides and all this stuff, and um, probably the most prominent two is the Michelin Guide, but they don't go to Australia, and then. The other one is the top 50 in the world, and this place is number 33 in the world. Mm. And, you know, every day we wake up, get to work, and then we go to these gardens that we had, and we would pick all these herbs and different flowers and stuff like that, and we use it all that night. And then a group of us would go foraging on train tracks <laughs> or, like, wild cabbage and uh, wood sorrel and all these things and then we cook for um, we get to work around 9 a.m. and leave around 1 a.m. Um, brutal. <laughs> you do that uh, do that five times a week and not get paid a penny it was the life. <laughs> um, no, I, I do enjoy it. It's just like it was looking at the like little details like what what was he doing that made him so great you know like yeah and that helped me kind of begin to coalesce in my own mind what kind of restaurant I wanted to have um did you ever in that time that you were there did you ever have a point where you were like why am I doing this or questioning it or 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 feeling sort of close to giving up because like I mean that's that's way more like you're the second person that I've interviewed for this podcast who sort of knew from a very early age what you wanted to do and like it seems like you were kind of willing to do whatever it took because it was the only thing that you wanted to do um Mm -hmm. but I'm just curious like that that level of challenge is something that um in many ways, I think is fairly unique to the cooking world where you're working like right. that intensely um, and not getting paid money. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's something that like not a lot of people, like you really have to be in it. Um, I'm just curious if there was right. ever a point where you were like, ah, like, is this worth it? I mean, to answer that question, you kind of have to go back a little bit. Um, I think that there's only two industries two career paths that I, um, when they say that they're tired, I like listen to and I don't envy and that's being a doctor and being a lawyer. Hmm. I think like for me, I had, I had plenty of options. Like I was middle-class suburban white boy. Like I had plenty of options to do and go to a lot of different places. And I always thought of myself as fairly intelligent. So there were options early on, seventh, eighth grade, to really pursue a path of higher intellect, of doing literally anything else than cooking. Right. Nothing in my life, and I realized this not too long ago, I would try and try and try different 
avenues of artistic um, expression and also just life. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of them clicked in the same way. Mm-hmm. Like when I was in, in high school, you know, like there's that um, image of the bad kid in class who has their math or science book open and they put like an inappropriate magazine inside of it. Uh, <laughs> so the teacher doesn't see. And I did the same thing, but with cookbooks inside my math book. Wow. <laughs> like, like nothing clicked the same way hmm. that food did. And I think to truly answer your question, when I was going to culinary school for the first day, we went to orientation and then the first day was like, you got dressed in your chef coat and all this stuff and you went and you got oriented and you met your classmates and all this stuff. And I will never forget. We were supposed to meet that thing at like seven thirty in the morning. I got up at like four thirty in the morning. Wow. I took like a 45 minute shower. Cause I was so like, are you sure you want to do this? Like I kept telling myself over and over, like you can leave and all that stuff. And then there was a part of me that was like, there was like a chip on my shoulder that kind of came into play where I was like, you know, I had all these options. Like I had a long, difficult process with my family to convince them mm-hmm. that I wanted to cook. And so it's like, if I don't do this, then like my insecurities will be correct. The people who told me I should be doing something else would be right. Mm-hmm. And so eventually I got to a point during this like 45 minute shower that I was like, this is, you don't have a choice. But I think as I look at it now, like, you know, I'm an oddity in the field. Like, this is a field that's full of debauchery and drug and alcohol abuse and high suicide rates and all of this stuff. And I'm like, you know, why am I here? Like, I grew up around, uh, like, this Baha'i faith that is super strict and removes a lot of the, like, a lot of laws don't apply the world of cooking or like mm. how we treat each other it's like why am i here it's like well if i didn't do that first step if i didn't do this this and this then i wouldn't have gone to this point and if i'm here i might as well be the best at it that i can be because anything less than that is failing mm. um i think that's like why i didn't get into drawing or different arts because the best i could do with drawing was so below my own standard. Hmm. And even when I was, you know, in first, second grade, I was taking art classes, you know, I'd be drawing or painting and it was, I could not, nothing would work. But then I would go home and I would make dumplings and they were good. Hmm. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so when you, like, I had to work extra hard. I had to pick up extra shifts. I had to, you know, sell and get rid of so much stuff that was like, it was really tough to get rid of all those things, <clears throat> like just material things in order to afford and be able to go to Australia. But like, it didn't matter. Like I was, it was me and this other guy, uh, Bjorn from Germany. And we were usually the first ones there. Mm-hmm. And I was usually the first one there who wasn't getting paid. And I was like, I gave up relationships. I gave up friendships. I gave up material objects that I collected for years and years and years. I gave up a good job. I gave up like the clout that one gets when they work in an industry for long enough in a city. You know, I gave up all these things to be here. Like I don't, they can do nothing that harms me. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they wanted me to work 20 hour days, but okay. Like I got a place within walking distance on purpose. Right. Um, That's awesome. Slash really intense. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I know, I mean, you and I have had conversations before. Uh, I remember several years ago, I know I was dating a chef for a while. uh, And Mm -hmm. we had a a brief exchange just talking about the challenges of, of dating when you're working in a kitchen. Mm hmm. <laughs> uh is it, it I mean is that ever something that 
I don't know, this is maybe like too existential of a question, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm curious, like, how does that, how does that work for people? I mean, like there are plenty of chefs who, who are, have, you know, marriages and I think healthy marriages. Um, <laughs> and, and I guess there are other things that you can sort of move on to at later points in life where you're maybe able to control your schedule a bit more, but, um, right. yeah, I'm just curious how that looks from your perspective. Um, it's not easy. I think that there has you, whoever your partner ends up being, I think has to fall into one of two categories. One is someone who is insanely supportive, who will bend over backwards to make sure that your relationship works, doing things like waking up early to give you a ride to work and um, or staying up late to give you a ride back just to spend a little bit of time together. Um, things like making sure that, you know, your hours are the same so that you can spend a little bit of time. So there's, there's one side, the insanely supportive side. And then the other side, I think, is someone who has to be as intense and as passionate as you are mm-hmm. about whatever they're doing. I personally don't love dating people in the hospitality industry because it's like you're dating yourself and (laughs) every cook, every cook who is especially in fine dining has some level of narcissism in them. And I'm trying to not exploit that. Um, So I don't want to date someone who is in the same industry it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make like me a better person when the person that I'm with has the same issues that I just had after a long week or a long day of work. Um, it's like, well, the server didn't show up. And so we had to, you know, I had to run food and blah. blah. I'm like, Oh, same thing happened. Oh, you worked 18 hours to me too. Yay. Um, <laughs> it doesn't, for me, that doesn't, that doesn't work. But I think being with someone who is intensely in love with whatever, um, whatever it is that they're doing, whatever they right and puts maybe not as many hours like at the job as you do, but maybe, you know, like, you know, a doctor or a lawyer who Mm -hmm. does put in as many hours as one does. And as I do, whether it's at the hospital, at the office, or, you know, they have to take work home. That's the right. thing that I have the benefit of is I might work 90, 100 hours a week. But the second I leave those, that restaurant, I don't, I don't take anything home. Sometimes they do. Or even like, you know, someone who's a professor or something along those lines. It really just depends on the person. And I think, I do think that it is insanely chilly. I think it's like a dream for a lot of cooks to like date someone who works with them and, oh, we're going to open a restaurant together. That is the quickest way to end a relationship. <laughs> um, you're like, oh, we're going to uh, get married and then open a restaurant, both of which have insanely high uh, statistics of failure within the first five years. Cool. Mm. <laughs> um, it's probably, probably not the best idea. And I think the one thing that's really part of why I need like someone's not in the hospitality industry is because for me it keeps me grounded sometimes mm. when you're in such an intense industry you end up becoming so insular with other people in the same industry right like and that's your only friends you know and mm. I don't you know I know so many people who on their days off or day off all they do is either spend time by themselves sleeping and recovering or hanging out with the same people they just worked 180 hours or 80 hours with like it's not as a human it's not sustainable for me yeah um some people maybe they want to do that i'm just like nah i'm good (laughs) um so yeah so i'm curious um in terms of 
you know, it sounds like you, you've gotten a lot of inspiration from other chefs. Um, but just speaking mm -hmm. of like looking outside of this world that you're living in 90 to a hundred hours a week, uh, are there any other places beyond sort of the food world where you get inspiration? I get, so actually the biggest inspiration I have is a painter hmm. by the name of Mark Rothko. Ah. And I accidentally in high school did a project and was assigned him. It was a project for uh, a European history class where <clears throat> um, we had to pick someone between um, World War II and the end of the Cold War, an artist who was born in Europe and had to do like a biography on them. And okay. I was like, I don't know any of these people. And like, we weren't allowed Picasso, which is like the only one I knew. And so I was assigned Mark Rothko. And hmm. it was like a very serendipitous thing. When I see his work, I want my food to have the same sentiment that he paints with hmm. where his paintings can literally be a giant canvas of orange and you're like why is this art <laughs> but then as you move closer you realize that maybe he painted orange 20 times over and over and over again but then in this one spot, he only did 10. So it's a little bit lighter, not as bold. And then over here, maybe between the eighth and the ninth layer of orange, he painted brown. And as you look at it throughout the entire thing, like from far away, it looks like this unsophisticated plebeian attempt at art with like mismatched uh, edges. But then we get really close to it. You realize that everything is very purposeful. That as you look at this little quadrant, it's completely different than the next one. And so your eye is stimulated, even though it might be one, two, or even three colors. But as you look through this whole thing, you realize that from afar, there's maybe three colors. So there's three things to keep you interested in, which is for painting, not, not enough. But when you examine it on the foot, like you continue to examine, it, you realize that there is almost the entire rainbow of colors within this painting, but just in slightly different shades and slightly different accents. And I really like, and I really like food that does that. You know, something mm -hmm. very amazing for me is when you sit down and you have a bowl of curry, mm -hmm. and it's orange. You know. If you think about it, curry, especially rustic curry, looks a little bit like um, throw up. Like it's kind of lumpy. Doesn't <laughs> have a great a color to it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's not the most eye appealing thing. Uh huh. But then when you eat it, you realize that even though it's yellow, that there are so many herbs, spices, chilies mm. that have gone into it that even though your eye perceives yellow, if you really look closer at it, there are greens, there are oranges, there yeah. are reds, there are whites, there are browns, all mashed together looks yellow. But when you taste it, you're like, oh, there are 30 ingredients in this thing. <laughs> and I am, I am like out of my element thinking that it was just like turmeric and coconut milk. <laughs> you know? Right. Mm. Unexpected layers of complexity. Right. I love yeah. food that you, you sit down and I like creating food that you sit down and you, you look at and you're like, okay. And then when you take a bite, you're like, everything is happening right now. I don't understand. Because I always want food to be familiar yet wildly unexpected. And also really intense. I love really intense food. And so when I create sauces or, you know, paste and stuff like that, I want you to be like, oh, 
this is mild mannered and you're like <laughs> uh take a bite <laughs> and then they take a bite and they're like oh my god you know, I've, I've had people be like how like what's in here and i'd be like oh like five ingredients but each one of those ingredients like i might have made from scratch like i made mm-hmm. recently for a dinner with friends i made togarashi which is like a classic japanese like spice blend you put over mm-hmm. rice or eggs or whatever it's just it's like right you know, it's like this dry mix and i could have bought togarashi already made and i was like nope i'm just gonna make every single part and bring it together and so people are like oh it's togarashi cool and then you eat it you're like wait like it was ginger that i cut up and i dried it was orange peel that i dried some really mm-hmm. nice oranges it was you know a little bit of this a little bit of that that's unexpected that keeps it interesting Awesome. Um, well, thanks so much, Ben. This has been really fascinating. Um, and we do need to wrap up before we do that. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a little bit about your current project. Um, sure. can you tell us about Sans Wolf? So over the summer I was working at Komi and I decided that I wanted to try and get better, uh, at tempering chocolate and making chocolates because it's something that I just mm-hmm. didn't know. And so I, I tried and tried and tried. I got pretty decent at it. And then in November, I broke my foot and I was like pretty upset about it. And so to keep from like going crazy with nothing to do, I decided to start this little business. And I thought that it would just amount to me making a few bucks here and there and then just stay busy. But then I had a couple friends who tried it and they're like, this is really good. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so we wanted to do chocolates that were also unexpected and chocolates that wouldn't be too cloying. So almost mm-hmm. all the chocolates we do are dark chocolate. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, we went around, we tried all these different chocolates and some of them were really great and some of them were like not so good. I think I wanted to remove the idea of what chocolate is as well. Like everyone just assumes like Snickers and Kit Kat. And so like, we want to do something that's really complex that you can eat almost in one sitting, the four flavors that we do. And it's kind of like parts of a meal, like each one has a different like approach. And so we want to do chocolates that were also uh, unusual. So I think one of the, my favorite ones we call, and also everything is named after hip hop and uh, metal songs. Um, <laughs> So there's one called Twins, which is a a big pun song. Um, And as you eat it, the intent is that as you're eating it, you realize, oh, man, there's like a little bit of spice. There's like chipotle in it. There's some like burnt orange. You're like, oh, that's cool. But really, as you eat it, it's intended to be kind of all the components that you would have in a mole. Mm. Um, And then there's some unusual ones that like, came came about haphazardly like i cooked for a friend's birthday and it was getting kind of rushed because he was was supposed to be a surprise and he was rushing home and i had made a chocolate cake with caramel frosting and the chocolate cake was still too hot so it started melting the frosting and it was like falling apart so we changed it into a trifle which is like a layered uh dessert right, with like, like chocolate cake and pudding and that kind of stuff right yeah exactly so i was like oh well it needs crunch and so it was a caramel frosting chocolate cake and so i found potato chips and i was like oh i'll put <laughs> this in there and so one of the flavors is 43 percent burnt which is a metal song and it's caramel and potato chip with a dark chocolate on the outside Ooh, that sounds so good <laughs> <laughs> honestly it, like I can't even knock it it's like yeah it's pretty great <laughs> awesome and if people want to buy um your chocolates can they buy them online yeah um sandswolf.com um we're setting up the shop right now if you want to direct you don't have my number and just want some just find our instagram and dm me uh sandswolf underscore chocolates 
cool. And I'll put all this stuff in the show notes so that people can also see it in writing. Um, Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ben. This has been such a great conversation. So fun talking to you and catching up on the last several years of your life <laughs> since I haven't seen you My pleasure. In, in most of this time. It's been a while. Um, it's been a while. All right. Thank you, Ben. No worries. Thank you so much for listening to Everyday Creative People. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to subscribe to future episodes and rate the podcast, leave a comment, and tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook at Dina Adrian's Coaching and join the community over in the Creative Playground Facebook group. I'd love to hear from you. See you again next Monday. Same bat time, same bat channel.